You are listening to Cyber Law Monitor, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now, let's get started with your host, Andrew Baer. Hello, and welcome to Cyber Law Monitor. Our topic today is artificial intelligence, what you need to know. We have a great panel assembled for you. Our guests are Chris Dotson and Ben Mishkin, who are partners in Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Group, and Matt Clare, a senior associate in Cozen's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Group. How are you guys doing today? Great. Doing well. Yeah, thanks, thanks Andy. Great. Glad to have you all here. So let's launch right into it. What do we mean by artificial intelligence? And how are some of the ways it's being used in the marketplace? What are some of the risks to put people that are posed by the use of artificial intelligence in business. So most of you in the audience are probably familiar by now with OpenAI's ChatGPT 4.0. It's an example of a large language, large language model and also an example of what's called generative AI. Generative AI is AI that essentially creates something. ChatGPT 4.0 is text-based. It can write papers, poems, analyses, just about anything you ask it to. Other types of generative AI include image-generating platforms that can create graphical works, and we'll get to those in a few minutes. Ben, I know you have some thoughts about large language models and generative AI. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, in preparation for this conversation, uh, I um, went on ChatGPT myself. Uh, it is free to create an account, log in, and try talking to the machine yourself if you're interested. Um, so logged in and asked them, the uh, ChatGPT to please write me a podcast script about what you need to know about AI from a legal and regulatory perspective. Um, and it did actually uh, quite a reasonable job uh, writing a podcast script. Uh, it's pretty high level. It's pretty brief. Uh, it, it even included the note at the beginning uh, to cue introductory music. So it, it's clearly digested some other podcasts and figuring out how to do that. Um, so I was pretty impressed with it um, writing a podcast script. I've, I've asked it to do some other things, um, including summarizing for me some of uh, the new and emerging laws uh, that are recently been come out in the United States uh, uh, privacy laws. But I'll talk about that a little bit uh, later in the podcast. The results of that, um, suffice to say, are not quite as encouraging as the podcast script. I'm a little worried about the uh, podcast script, Ben. I may be out of a job here, uh, but that's a common concern <laughs> in this technological age. So as we mentioned, um, ChatGPT is an example of a large language model. It hoovers up lots and lots of, of data from all sorts of various sources and parses it uh, in its algorithm, uses this data as training sets, and it spits out pretty much anything textual you ask it, including a podcast script. Not this one, though. Uh, other types of AI models are less far-ranging. They're more designed to solve specific problems. An example of this would be uh, an algorithm that conducts employment screening, looks at a whole bunch of resumes, and screens out certain job candidates for interviews. And this type of use case is a good segue into potential harms to individuals and businesses associated with AI. And that's really the reason we're talking today, talking about 
legal risks associated with AI and emerging regulation. So a laundry list of potential harms to individuals and businesses associated with the use of AI is follows. Uh, for one, privacy. I mentioned that large language models and other forms of AI uh, hoover up data sets for training, lots and lots of data. Some of this could be personal information, perhaps even sensitive personal information, information about credit histories, employment histories, resume information, etc. There are also growing concerns about the use of AI associated with facial recognition technology in law enforcement. Think about the 2002 Steven Spielberg film Minority Report. As we mentioned with employment, a major concern about AI is the use of AI to make significant or consequential decisions involving human beings, possibly without adequate human intervention or supervision or any human intervention or supervision. So when we think about consequential decisions, think about decisions in employment, whether or not to interview somebody, whether or not to hire somebody, evaluating somebody's performance, evaluating somebody for promotion, credit decisions, health decisions, housing decisions, and criminal justice decisions. AI is only as good as the human beings that design it and the human beings that select and provide the training sets that are used to train the algorithm. So human biases, which we'll get to in a minute, can be introduced in AI in various ways. And if those biases aren't monitored, audited, and designed out in some ways, they can percolate in terms of harmful decisions, very consequential decisions involving human life. Another emerging use of AI is in spreading disinformation and deep fakes. Ben, I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, uh, thanks, Andy. Um, so uh, to continue my anecdote, um, one other thing that I asked ChatGPT to do uh, out of curiosity was to summarize uh, Iowa's new state privacy law, uh, which recently was passed and enacted in that state. Um, and uh, the robot did not do uh, nearly as good a job uh, as it did with the podcast script. Um, it told me that this law was passed in, I think, 2021. It told me that uh, it had threshold of uh, needing to have $25 million in revenue, which is not true. Um, so it, it basically made up um, some information, some of the information was accurate and, and some of the information it told me about the law was, was, was just false. It was not accurate. So, um, the, the, I think disinformation, whether intentional or unintentional, um, disinformation is, is a real problem, especially with the large language model, um, AI. Um, you know, I think one of the big questions, um, is, is how you train that model, um, and how you train it in a way to avoid disseminating misinformation. You know, unfortunately, uh, I think we know that ChatGPT and some other uh, emerging and uh, popular large language models uh, were trained on the larger internet, um, including specifically uh, training them on uh, Reddit message boards, which if you're familiar with Reddit, anyone in the world can sign up and participate in a conversation. Um, obviously, that includes both people who are interested in having intelligent, truthful conversations and people who are Internet trolls who are interested in uh, misleading people, uh, in, again, intentionally or otherwise. 
So if, if you feed uh, your large language model misinformation and posts on social media, posts on, on message boards by trolls, I think it shouldn't be surprising that the output of your large language model may include misinformation. And then the other kind of related concern, intentional disinformation, you know, you could certainly see how someone could exploit a large language model to basically become an automated talking head on social media and promulgate intentionally disinformation, something that countries around the world are engaged in at a sometimes, I think, automated, sometimes manual level, uh, intentionally spreading disinformation. That is, uh, I think, a, a tool like an LLM would allow them to do that much more efficiently and perhaps much more convincingly. So uh, I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast um, what some uh, uh, proposed solutions, uh, frameworks are that are being proposed. Um, but truthfulness and accuracy, I think, are, are going to have to come to the forefront here in order to avoid having a scenario in which you have large language models, again, both intentionally and unintentionally, widely disseminating misinformation and disinformation. Thanks, Ben. That's definitely a risk. I should also briefly mention that image creating generative AI can be used to create so-called deep fakes. So-called photos uh, or movies showing politicians or other public figures engaging in activity that uh, they actually didn't. Uh, and this is getting increasingly realistic. Uh, I don't know if anybody caught the Republican National Committee's uh, AI-generated video in response to President Biden's announcement of his re-election bid. They created a, an AI video of a, of a dystopian America uh, a few years from now, including the army occupying San Francisco due to uh, crime and, uh, and, and fentanyl. Uh, the graphics in that were not uh, quite as good as your average Hollywood movie, but they're uh, but, but they're getting better. Um, so that's a, that's a big concern as well. Let me turn back briefly to algorithmic bias, which I mentioned earlier. An algorithmic bias translates into a lot of the regulation of AI, such as it is, that exists in the U.S. and Europe right now. As we already mentioned, if human bias is reflected in information, the training data that an AI algorithm is trained with, the AI can replicate and even enhance that bias. Bias can even be introduced into the design of AI. Again, AI is only as good as the human beings that create it and train it. So if you're going to use an AI algorithm in making consequential decisions involving human beings, employment, credit, some of the examples I, I, I cited earlier, the introduction of bias, either at the training data stage or at the design stage, can lead to civil rights issues. Last but not least, I wanted to say a brief word about IP issues uh, involving AI, and there are, there are many here. So on one side, if you upload source code, for example, or other sensitive information or valuable intellectual property uh, to an AI algorithm, you may end up losing it because what the AI spits out is essentially a synthesis and adaptation of images, data, and other information that uh, it's been trained on, some of which is submitted uh, by its developers, some of which it just hoovers up by scraping websites and other publicly available sources around the internet. Um, in this regard, information on publicly available websites or other areas, copyrighted images, other types of protected 
intellectual property could be scraped up and regurgitated in some sort of synthesized or adapted form, you know, in response to somebody else's uh, somebody else's query. So there's a question when you use an AI to produce some sort of work product, where that work product is coming from and whether indeed it infringes on some third party's intellectual property. A similar issue involves protection of the work product that is being generated by the AI. So the U.S. Patent Office has held that you need a human being to be an inventor of something that can be protected by a patent. The U.S. Copyright Office has held that you need a human being to be an author of a copyrighted work. So if you use an AI to produce a a picture, a movie, a podcast uh, script, anything uh, anything of the sort, who owns that? You might have trouble protecting it by a copyright or a patent. Now, there are emerging legal theories uh, that are coming into play uh, that are trying to preserve some role for human beings to assert intellectual property ownership in the work product of AI. So, for example, in the copyright setting, uh, there's a theory that if you give careful and detailed enough instructions to an AI algorithm that reflect a selection of variables and reflect some input of creativity on the human being's part, and then the AI uses those instructions to uh, create a copyrightable work like a picture, uh, that submission of instructions by the human being might show enough creativity in itself to support a copyright. So that's one theory. But uh, a lot of this remains to uh, still be resolved by the courts. And in that respect, Matt, I I know you wanted to bring up some representative cases. Uh, That's right. Um, In February of this year, there was a case brought by Getty Images uh, against Stability AI in which they alleged that Stability infringed Getty Images' IP by copying millions of photos from Getty's collection and using those photos to train their AI. Uh, specifically the images in Getty's text descriptions that accompanied the images and put them into context. Uh, sort of humorous, some, some of Stability AI's uh, images generated by their tool actually included Getty Images' watermark uh, that it applies to all of their pictures. Uh, essentially, the AI thought the watermark was part of the photograph itself and didn't recognize that it was actually a copyright protection feature and sort of Busted. Uh, embedded, it in, yeah, embedded it in each of the images or many of the images that it generated. And that's a good example of how AI can raise all sorts of multifarious uh, IP issues. And that was a particularly, uh, in, uh, you know, in artful one, uh, but uh, it's a good illustrator. So we've identified all the types or many of the types of possible harms to human beings, to businesses that the use of AI can, uh, can create. Uh, and I don't want to underestimate or undersell AI's positives as well. We wouldn't be having uh, this conversation right now if it didn't represent uh, a huge enhancement in the ability to automate uh, processes and make business more efficient. So let's turn to the AI legal regime in the United States right now. We'll talk about Europe in a second. Right now, there's not much in the United States that is AI specific, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to worry about things. Regulators and the AI technological community are gradually coalescing around a roster of certain values that should inform the design and operation of AI systems. And it's our expectation that these values will eventually be enshrined in, uh, you know, in regulation and or, you know, be perhaps a safe harbor or a defense 
um, you know, against safety issues or claims involving safety issues around AI. So to give you an example, um, here is a listing of the AI values from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, which is a well-known international organization. Inclusive growth, sustainable development and well-being, human-centered values and fairness, Transparency and explainability. Let me spend a moment on this. Transparency and explainability is where we see a lot of policymaking and regulatory action around AI right now. In a nutshell, transparency and explainability mean being able to explain and document what the AI does, how it does it, and why it reaches certain results. And this, again, ties into certain other uh, issues like algorithmic bias that we mentioned earlier and we'll also discuss later on on this podcast. Robustness, security, and safety is, uh, is another value, another key value. We don't want Skynet to become self-aware. And lastly, accountability. And these values, as I mentioned earlier, and they've been cast in various forms, but they, uh, they align roughly with the five values that I just stated uh, are being considered by regulators uh, in Europe and the United States and uh, by NIST, which we'll get to in a second, the NIST organization. So they should be used in designing an AI system to minimize legal and regulatory risk. One thing I should mention when turning to the specific legal regime um, impacting AI in the United States is that you don't have to have a law labeled AI regulation to be applicable to AI. So a lot of non-AI specific laws have been um, applied to any automated processing of information to make decisions. So uh, think of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Just as it's illegal for a human being to use data to make a, uh, a decision involving credit that um, you know, that negatively impacts or discriminates against an individual based on some sort of protected legal class like race and gender and, and, and whatnot. If your AI algorithm in an automated manner does this uh, because either of um, bad training data, non-representative training data, or um, improper design, again, you could face a regulatory action. State privacy laws impact on the use of AI. So the new comprehensive state privacy laws in California and several other states uh, include uh, restrictions um, and limitations on profiling individuals. Sometimes you have to do an impact assessment um, to document high risk processing decisions. So again, the use of AI algorithms uh, to profile people or to uh, make consequential decisions involving human activity could impact these laws. Uh, there's a new law in New York City on the use of AI uh, in employment-related uh, decisions. The implementation of this law was recently delayed, but it will go on to uh, it will go into effect sometime. It requires a, a bias audit as well as other documentation before you use AI in employment decisions involving uh, New York residents. Let's turn to the Federal Trade Commission. The Federal Trade Commission, um, under its authority under Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, allowing the FTC to take action against unfair or deceptive acts or practices impacting commerce, the FTC has used this power under Section 5 
to make its thoughts known in a variety of areas in the past, notably privacy and data security, but now it's getting into uh, AI. So in 2012, the FTC commented that it would consider it a, uh, a violation of Section 5 of the FTC Act, an unfair or deceptive act or practice to develop or sell an AI that's discriminatory. So again, think of algorithmic bias. And Matt, I understand the FTC took some action in the Ever Album case. That's right. Uh, in 2021, uh, the FTC brought an enforcement action against Ever Album, which was sort of a photo storage service. Uh, the FTC alleged that Ever Album deceived users as to how Ever Album was using their images for its facial recognition technology. Uh, and actually, Ever Album was retaining photos for that purpose, even after users had deleted their accounts. So uh, in that case, the FTC went as far as requiring EverAlbum to delete not only the photos that it was that it retained without permission, uh, but also the algorithm that it created and trained using those using those images. I think, as the FTC commissioner put it, uh, EverAlbum was required to forfeit the fruits of their deception and delete the algorithm. Uh, there was a similar result actually as well in the FTC's action against WW International, uh, which is the Weight Watchers organization. Uh, Weight Watchers was using children's data without proper consent in a weight loss application that was directed towards kids that had AI features. Uh, and in that case as well, the FTC required Weight Watchers to delete the data, delete the algorithms, and pay a monetary penalty in connection with that with that use. Um, so two examples of sort of algorithmic disgorgement requirements by the FTC um, and associated with privacy-related violations in connection with an AI. Thanks, Matt. And that's a perfect example of the assertive FTC posture that I mentioned earlier with uh, Lena Khan, uh, the FTC commissioner, uh, very much an activist commissioner. Uh, she's indicated that the FTC is willing to jump into areas uh, that Congress may not have specifically regulated yet. So getting back to values or adherence to a, a particular framework in designing an AI um, system. Chris, I understand uh, NIST has issued a new framework. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, they, they recently uh, published uh, a risk management uh, framework proposal. Um, it, it bears a lot of similarities to some of the other um, modes of, of AI risk management that we've seen, uh, particularly out of the EU and, and also uh, academic settings and, and industry groups. Um, but they, 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 they break down the risks into some broad areas like validity and reliability, safety, uh, so the AI system should not endanger human interests, uh, including life, health, property, and the environment. Uh, it should be secure and resilient. Uh, it needs to uh, account for accountability and transparency particularly in the outputs of the AI. Uh, it also needs to be explainable uh, and interpretable, and that, that's more focused on the, the system itself and making sure we, we have a, a window into its operations. Needs to account for privacy, uh, so anonymity where that's appropriate, confidentiality, uh, all, all that needs to be factored in. And also, as, as you mentioned before, it has to account for the possibility of, of bias. So basically addressing harmful bias and discrimination uh, in the data, in the output, uh, et cetera. So I think, I think the framework is a good start. Uh, it definitely 
uh, feels like a, a version one uh, product. So I, I think over time it's likely to see some refinements uh, and uh, be, be a pretty usable uh, document for AI developers. I'm glad to hear that. Right now we don't have a universally recognized standard uh, for developing and designing AI systems, but uh, certainly in the um, data governance and uh, data security space, uh, the NIST framework has has become one of the gold standards, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, if companies commit that they, you know, adhere to it and they, in fact, do adhere to, the, to it, it can be, a, you know, a partial protection, uh, you know, against certain types of liability associated with data breach. So perhaps we'll see... Um, you know, a similar standard um, evolve in the AI space. And I think a lot of companies uh, would certainly like some direction in this area it's because right now it's kind of the uh, the Wild West as, as we're seeing. So uh, one last thing I should mention in terms of the law of AI, there's always the law of private contract. Companies uh, buying, licensing, or developing AI systems have the ability to um, include risk mitigation or risk allocation provisions like reps and warranties and indemnities uh, in their in, in their contracts and we'll get to that in a minute so let's talk for a, a brief moment about how we see AI laws and regulations involving in the US so I know the uh, Department of uh, Commerce has uh, issued a request on uh, on AI accountability so Chris maybe we uh, we can talk a little bit about the um, talk a little bit about the DOC's uh, request for comment. Would you mind uh, sharing a few words on this? Uh, yeah, so so Andy, the, the Department of Commerce recently put out a, a request for comment, uh, essentially looking, looking for industry input on uh, potential uh, AI regulations and guidance and, and what would, uh, would what would be helpful uh, for, for industry uh, to, to see the government uh, produce over time. Thanks, and I'm sure we'll get lots of comments on that. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, I think we're going to see a lot of the evolution of uh, the law of AI in the United States come through case law and possibly regulators uh, you know, adopting certain uh, frameworks for design like the NIST standards, either by uh, requiring them or perhaps providing some sort of defense or safe harbor from liability um, if uh, AI developers commit to adherence with some well-recognized framework. So let's turn to Europe with that. Um, and uh, Ben, I understand the AI regulation regime is a little more advanced in Europe than it is in the US. Yeah, I think that's fair, Andy. Um, I would say that the, the uh, EU is still in the early stages, the EU and the UK uh, are in the early stages of developing a regulatory framework for AI but they are a little bit farther along than the United States. Uh, there is a proposed national EU act, uh, supranational EU act that I'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, the first notable development that has been in headlines um, and, and has breaking news as of today is a, an outright ban on chat GPT in Italy um, a couple weeks ago, the Italian Data Protection Authority issued an order to to, to ChatGPT to OpenAI, the company that makes ChatGPT available, to suspend operations and stop uh, collecting information of Italian citizens for a GDPR violation. So 
you know, this is an example of regulating AI from a privacy perspective, obviously. The Italian regulator cited a few violations. They included no age verification, so no, uh, you know, no um, need for the user to verify that they were over the age of 18, and a failure to disclose kind of basic information, stuff that you'd find in a privacy policy about how folks' information is going to be used. Um, I think they were specifically concerned that OpenAI reserves broad rights to kind of use anyone who interacts with this tool, uh, so which includes me since I have interacted with that tool, to use uh, folks' data to train it and to kind of do whatever they want with it um, to enhance uh, OpenAI's products and services, which includes ChatGPT. So uh, the Italian Data Protection Authority kind of saw this as a GDPR violation. They suspended ChatGPT in Italy. And then breaking news this morning, uh, ChatGPT is now back online. Uh, OpenAI has apparently addressed the issue, satisfactorily addressed the issues raised by Italy's DPA. Um, and I, I went on OpenAI this morning. And in fact, there is a new option if you go on there. Um, I believe it is, unfortunately for me, limited to European individuals, but you can request to have your data removed. Um, so despite the fact that you have uh, fed the model by talking to it or asking it questions, uh, you can now submit basically a data deletion request. It requires you to fill out a lengthy form, uh, lengthier forms than I think most of us are familiar with when we look at these forms on, on more direct-to-consumer websites. But, but indeed, there is a method now that was not there just a few days ago for someone to delete their information. So clearly, OpenAI um, had a vested interest here in getting back online and showing that they are able to comply with GDPR. Um, I think that they that was a strong interest for them because there were other countries that strongly signaled right after Italy suspended them that, that they might jump into the fray here. And the, the uh, EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, uh, said that it was forming a task force to look into to chat GPT specifically. So presumably there will be additional scrutiny. Uh, for now, however, um, you know, breaking news as of today, uh, they are back online in Italy. So uh, the, the larger framework that's been proposed in Europe is uh, an Artificial Intelligence Act. It is uh, uh, already been proposed. It is in the legislative process. Uh, it's been proposed by the European Commission. So uh, it is moving its way slowly through the complex European Union regulatory process. And it is a complex proposal to establish a, a kind of overarching legal framework on AI. Um, you know, some of the principles, Andy, that you uh, already mentioned are, are built into this thing. Um, kind of the overarching goal of these regulations is to ensure uh, transparency and to ensure that there is some kind of human oversight over the system, especially in contexts in which there is even a moderate, let alone high risk associated with the, with the automated processing, with what the AI is doing. Uh, they want there to be human oversight built into um, how the AI is being used and how the AI is being controlled. So um, it's, it's an interesting framework. One of the most interesting aspects to me is it, it actually creates outright unacceptable risk categories that would just be prohibited. Uh, people would not be allowed to use AI for certain prohibited purposes if this does indeed pass in the EU. Um, you know, most 
systems, most AI systems are not going to be category categorized as high risk. You know, they, they have minimal or no risk and then a moderate risk category, but then they do have high risk and outright pro prohibited uh, risk categories. The outright prohibited ones, um, you know, one of the interesting ones there is uh, what they refer to as social scoring. So it's something uh, that I think the, they're, they're specifically the, the authors of the law are looking at uh, a practice that, uh, you know, allegedly takes place in countries like China where um, individuals are scored on the basis of uh, a number of characteristics, some of which are things like um, political beliefs, uh, quote, social misbehavior. Um, and this would even, you know, allegedly, again, include um, scoring children based on that kind of behavior and beliefs of parents. So obviously, I think um, to the uh, authors of the, the AI Act, that's anathema, and that would be outright prohibited. Other things that are outright prohibited are things that would, I think, make natural sense to someone who wants to prevent someone from, you know, using one of these very powerful AI tools to harm people. Uh, manipulation, subliminal manipulation, uh, exploiting vulnerable populations. Um, and then the other interesting one is biometric identification in publicly accessible spaces. Um, and as I think the folks on this call know, on, the, on this podcast know, um, you know, the law enforcement is uh, in, in the European Union in various countries are pushing back strongly on that aspect of the act. So it'll be interesting to see what makes its way into the final version, if anything makes its way into the final version on that um, subject. Uh, but as the law is, is currently drafted, it would just outright prohibit the use of artificial intelligence um, in order to capture uh, biometric identification, specifically facial recognition um, in public spaces. Um, the uh, very, very narrow exceptions to that. So, um, you know, that's not some of what I think is interesting about this AI. It'll be interesting also to see how this thing um, eventually makes its way through the EU's lawmaking process. Um, it is moving into the trilogue stage now, which I will candidly share with you. I do not know what that means. Um, by the end of this year is what most commentators have seen as the most kind of optimistic timeline for this thing to get a, a vote on, on passage from, uh, from, the, from the European Commission. So uh, stay tuned on that. Um, and then the, the last notable development in uh, EU-UK AI regulation that I'll note, um, in, the, in the United Kingdom, uh, they've come out with uh, an AI white paper. Um, the intent of the AI white paper is kind of to position the United Kingdom as uh, the, the, the country positioned to, to foster innovation around AI. Uh, it's written by the UK's uh, Department for Science, Innovation, and Technology. And the express purpose is let's think about how to regulate or not regulate around AI in a way that um, fosters development of AI in the UK specifically, that encourages people to come here um, to start AI companies, and that strengthens you know, the, one, the, the nascent AI industry that the country already has. Um, 
So, uh, again, a lot of the kind of overarching principles are ones that uh, overlap with that EU-wide AI Act and also with the principles that, Andy, you discussed um, from the international organization. So um, I think you're really seeing some coalescing around those principles. The, the way that they're articulated by the UK White Paper are uh, five principles, safety, security, and robustness, number one. Number two, transparency and explainability, uh, as Andy, you already discussed. Number three, fairness. Number four, accountability and governance. And number five, uh, interesting one, contestability and redress uh, to the extent people think that they've been harmed uh, by a decision made by an AI, that there would need to be um, some way that they could go about seeking redress for, for what they perceive to be a harm. Um, I think that's an interesting one and one you'll probably see in other jurisdictions as well. So that's the state of play uh, in the EU as evidenced by Italy reversing its ban today. Uh, a lot of the stuff is moving extremely quickly. So um, interested to see um, how things continue to develop in the EU uh, as well as in the United States. Very interested to see it indeed. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, as in the, the privacy realm, whether any of these European principles eventually become enshrined in, uh, in, in U.S. law. And I expect some of them will. So we've thrown a lot at our audience uh, in terms of risks and evolving legal frameworks. Uh, let's finally talk about what are some steps that companies which build or use AI can take to protect themselves. Matt, I know you have some thoughts on this. Sure. So in the in the context of, you know, license agreements, subscription agreements for AI type tools, I think, you know, garden variety contract provisions such as confidentiality or compliance with laws obviously take on a different meaning uh, from the AI provider's perspective in particular, uh, you know, for example, where the AI tool is used in connection with an HR function like hiring. Uh, so I think, you know, customers of AI solutions will want to contractually shift liability for bias and other issues to the vendor. Uh, and understandably, the vendors will try to resist that. I think, you know, an absolute guarantee that an AI tool will be free from bias is probably not a tenable position for any AI vendor. Um, and, you know, the vendor will argue that the customer's inputs um, to the AI tool have a significant bearing on the output generated by the AI and whether there's bias as well. Um, so I think, you know, the approach we're beginning to see is that sort of rather than an absolute guarantee of no bias or harmful effects, uh, you know, the contract reflects the bias controls and testing that each party is responsible for, uh, sort of similar to how information security risks are typically allocated in a cloud services contract. Uh, so, for example, the provider is required to periodically audit and mitigate bias in its tool. Uh, if a bias output is detected, the customer um, should be notified so it can take steps to mitigate its use of the biased output or the input data that it used, uh, that it supplied to generate that output. Uh, and then to the extent that the vendor has some leverage, it might try to make its notification and requirements and its correction efforts the customer's sole and exclusive remedy for an issue like that. Uh, sort of like you would typically see in a functional warranty in a tech contract. Um, I think external auditing under one of the standards we discussed previously will probably be expected and contractually required by customers of AI tools um, in the future. And I think as, you know, as vendors voluntary participation in external auditing under one of those standards might actually give it an edge over its competitors uh, by giving it the ability to market the fact that they're undergoing some kind of regular biased auditing um, under an external standard. Um, so those are some of the things that I think we've seen most frequently. Uh, other issues that might come up are sort of like um, confidentiality type uh, issues. I think sort of non-use 
of confidential information prohibitions might be inconsistent with sort of training usage of an AI. Uh, those are the types of things you'd want to think about in addition to um, the risk shifting provisions as well. Thanks, Matt. All good points. And last but not least, I'll say that companies should be aware of whether their employees are using AI, um, especially a generative AI like ChatGPT, uh, to create works, uh, work product or otherwise in the course of their employment or engagement in the company. Again, you want to be aware of whether uh, employees or others might be submitting sensitive information like source code uh, to AI or using AI to generate uh, source code or other works that the company hopes to exploit. So if you're in the type of business, uh, particularly a, a creative or a technology business, where um, you, know, you think your employees would have an incentive to use AI, would want to use AI, uh, think about creating some sort of guidance or framework you know, or policy to, uh, you know, to state where the company stands on these issues. Any last-minute thoughts or comments on the wide, wonderful world of AI? Yeah, uh, Andy, I'll just chime in to say uh, I think the genie is really out of the bottle at this point. Um, I think you know it's becoming increasingly clear that in the next few years, maybe sooner than that, um, AI-enabled tools are going to be um, proliferated throughout you know daily life, frankly, and professional life. Um, I think search engines, I think things like already, uh, you know, Microsoft tools, Microsoft uh, Office Suite, um, things that people use every day are going to have these tools integrated into them. So, you know, I think that uh, a lot of what we talked about today, to the extent, you know, the United States is, let's just say, sometimes a bit behind the curve in terms of in, uh, regulating nascent technologies, I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for people to sit still and not um, play some guardrails around this stuff, given how I think visible and um, again, expansive it's gonna be in, and, and how much people are gonna start interacting with it in the very near future. I agree, this uh, definitely ain't going away and I expect we're gonna update this podcast in the very near future. Well, that's all the time we have for Cyber Law Monitor. I want to thank our panel, uh, Matt, Ben, and Chris. Thanks, guys. This was fantastic. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. And thank you to our audience as well. Please stay tuned for more Cyber Law Monitor podcasts on emerging topics in technology and privacy. I'm your host, Andy Baer. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Take care.